You know, Charity Water has just broken through 10 million people served. My local stadium here in New York City is Madison Square Garden. The stadium only holds about 18,000 people. So Charity Water has filled up that stadium more than 500 times with the people around the world that have clean water because of the organization. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Scott Harrison. Scott is the founder and CEO of Charity Water and the New York Times bestselling author of Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. In 13 years, with the help of more than 1 million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised more than $400 million and funded more than 44,000 water projects in 28 countries. When completed, those projects will provide over 10 million people with clean, safe drinking water, which is an amazing accomplishment. If you'd like to help with that cause and help bring clean water to the world, please consider joining Charity Water's monthly donation program. It's called The Spring. You can find out about it at thespring.com. If you sign up, so again, the website address is thespring.com. If you sign up for a monthly donation, you can forward your receipts to rocket at ozanvarol.com and I will send you a free personalized and autographed copy of my forthcoming book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Once again, that email address is rocket at ozanvarol, O-Z-A-N-V as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com, and you'll get a free signed personalized copy of my book. In the episode, Scott and I talk about how Scott transformed himself from a hard-partying nightclub promoter with a substance abuse problem to a global humanitarian organization founder. We discuss how Scott's first humanitarian mission in war-torn Liberia inspired the creation of Charity Water, why being a philanthropic outsider was actually an advantage for Scott when he started Charity Water, the three key elements to great storytelling. Scott is an amazing storyteller, and he talks about the, the, the three key elements to a great story. Why Scott celebrated the workers who crashed a million-dollar well-drilling rig. And finally, what Scott would say to his younger self who founded Charity Water. Before I play you the interview, my forthcoming book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Strategies That You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, is now available for pre-order. I've been ecstatic about the early reviews of the book. Uh, the book was named a must-read by Susan Cain, endlessly fascinating by Daniel Pink, and bursting with practical insights by Adam Grant. If you pre-order the book, you'll get digital access to the book to read on your favorite device within just seven days of your pre-order. That means you can start reading the book months before it's actually released to the public. You'll also get pre-order bonuses that are worth at least 10 times the cost of the book and in some categories, much more than that. You can check out the bonuses and learn more about the book at rocketsciencebook.com. And finally, the proceeds from the pre-order sales will go to Charity Water. I'm donating, personally donating my royalties from the pre-order sales to Charity Water. So you will be supporting a good cause in the process as well. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Harrison. And thank you as always for listening. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to go back to your days as a nightclub promoter. On the outside, you had this amazing life. You were making a lot of money. You were dating models. You were drinking for free. 
But on the inside, it was a different story. Can you take us back to that period in your life and paint a picture of what that looked like? Yeah. So I had moved to New York City uh, really as an act of rebellion. I'd grown up in a very conservative family. My mom had gotten sick when I was young and she was an invalid uh, really my whole life. And I was an only child. I was in a caregiver role, uh, raised in the church. And coming to New York was just my turn. And I, and I wanted to rebel and I realized what better way to rebel than in style as a nightclub promoter. I just couldn't believe that there was an actual job where you could drink for free, you could fill up clubs and you could basically party for a living. So I wound up doing that for a long time. I wound up doing that for 10 years and working at 40 different nightclubs over that period of time. And You know, while maybe my life looked great on the outside, right, drinking for a living, uh, it was really kind of a miserable existence on the inside because I picked up all those vices that you would imagine. I was a heavy smoker. I was a heavy drinker, uh, drug use, gambling, pornography, kind of just all the darkness that you might associate with that that period of time. So it was a, it was a really interesting contrast because life looked great on the outside and then on the inside I was just rotting inside. I I came to my senses at 28 years old and this was really about 10 years into this journey uh, into nightlife and I just realized I'd become a really terrible person. I was uh, emotionally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I had betrayed every shred of morality my parents had tried to bring me up with. And my life just didn't matter. It wasn't going to account to anything. My tombstone you know, might read, here, here just lies a, a club rat who got lots of people drunk. You know, I, I just began to ask myself the question, what else might I do? What what would be a very different way to live a life? What would it be like to come back and re-explore the lost spirituality, the lost morality? And could I start life over at 28 years old? And that really led me to uh, to a pretty pretty big life change. What was the wake-up call for you? I mean, at one point, did you realize nightclub promoting isn't for me anymore? And, and I asked that question in part because when you're so immersed in what you're doing, you've been doing nightclub promotion for 10 years, it can be really hard to zoom out and sort of see the flaws in the way that you're living your life. So how did you come to that realization? There were really a couple clear moments, and I, I write about this in, in the book. You know, the, the first was this opulent vacation in South America, and I was in Punta del Esta. I was partying with all the beautiful people. My girlfriend was a model on the cover of fashion magazines. I drove the BMW, and I had a Rolex watch. And most of the things that I had been chasing, I'd gotten a taste of at this point. And there was something about maybe being removed from the scene being around people who were richer and more successful than I was, and just realizing there would never be enough. This was an insatiable desire to accumulate things for more status, for more wealth. Somebody might always have a more successful model girlfriend, a better car. People would have planes and I I wouldn't. And I think it's there it was just this rare moment of, of cathartic clarity where I was able to see my life almost from the outside. And I was able to see those around me. And I thought they were happy, but they really weren't. And we were all just chasing this thing that if we if we ever found it, well, we would never find it, right? Because the thing was more. The thing that we were chasing was more. And somebody would always have more. 
that led to really a three or four month exploration. And then at a club in New York City, I fired a bouncer for harassing a customer. And that bouncer came after me, threatened my life. And, you know, over 10 years in nightlife, you, you have your life threatened plenty and plenty of times. But this was just a, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, I've got this, I'm just in this really dark, disgusting business. It's not only unhealthy, it's also dangerous. And I got out of town and said, this is, this is the time to make the clean break. Uh, what would the opposite of my life look like? And the, the answer to that question that I came up with was, what if I left everything behind, sold everything I owned, and went to live in the poorest country in the world and tried to make myself of useful, of humanitarian usefulness to others? And the only thing I had going for me was 10 years of nightclub promoting and a degree that kind of got C minuses at New York University in communications. And I began to apply to some of the famous humanitarian organizations I'd heard of over the years, the World Visions and uh, UNICEFs and Doctors Without Borders, looking for opportunities with these organizations. And because my resume was such a misfit, for humanitarian work, I, I couldn't get anyone to take me. I was denied by these organizations. And after, gosh, about a month or six weeks of, of frustration, finally one organization wrote me back and said, we are sailing a giant hospital ship to Liberia, West Africa. We need a photojournalist. And if you're willing to pay $500 a month, you can volunteer with us. And I said, this is perfect. I mean, what could be more opposite? than actually having to pay to serve. And that begun really a, a, a really very different chapter in my life. Did you have any experience in photojournalism at the time? You know, I didn't, but I was a pretty good photographer. So I, I'd always taken pretty good pictures and was able to write write pretty well. My mom was a journalist. So, you know, I had used that much more in, in dabbling in fashion or taking photos for friends. But I thought maybe I could use that, those same storytelling skills to shine a spotlight on important humanitarian issues. Yeah. And I want to return to um, storytelling later on in the in the conversation. So let's put a pin there. But I'd, I'd love to hear about what your experience was like in, in Liberia first. I was dropped in, basically, into a post-war environment. Uh, Liberia is a small country in West Africa. Uh, it had just completed a 14-year civil war. And this was led by a terrible man named, named Charles Taylor, who had waged war using children for a decade and a half. He would put guns in the hands of kids. He would give them drugs. And, and they would fight for him. It ruined the country. 14 years of this, this brutal war had ruined the country, left it with no public electricity, no running water of any kind, no sewage system of any kind, no mail system. You couldn't send a letter to someone in the country. And most importantly, in, in our context, there was one doctor for every 50,000 people in the country. And, you know, this was, uh, you know, here in, in America, I think we have one doctor for every 300 Americans. Yeah. So when you got sick in this country, you were just mm -hmm. out of luck. If your kids got sick, they were out of luck. So that was the idea. We were going to be bringing in a, a team of volunteer doctors and surgeons. They were going to operate on a 522-foot hospital ship where we can control the conditions, where we would have an MRI machine and a CT scan and and top of the line operating theaters. And then we would bring sick people on the ship. We would operate for free. We would give them medical care and then we would release them transformed. 
And how many people did you end up treating on the ship? There was this moment for me on my third day on the mission where we had our patient Scre- uh, pa- patients screening, although the veterans on the ship would call it patient screaming. And uh, we, we had about 1,500 available surgery slots that we could schedule. So think of this as just a big triage day. You market to all the sick people out there in the country. You hope that they get the flyers, that the word spreads, and then they turn up and they queue in line outside of a football stadium. And then our doctors are inside this football stadium and are going to just see as many people as possible and then schedule them for surgery. And that day, I'll never forget, you know, I remember thinking, oh, wow, are there even 1,500 people that have these kind of conditions, cleft lips and cleft palates and tumors and flesh-eating disease and burn contractures and all this crazy stuff? I'll never forget when we jumped in Land Rovers around 5 a.m. with our hospital scrubs on and we headed towards the stadium. I'll never forget seeing 5,000 people waiting in the parking lot. And that just hit me. You know, oh my gosh, we're going to send 3,500 people home with no hope. We don't have enough doctors. We, we are not uh, going to be able to meet this great need. And I later learned that so many of these people had walked with their children for more than a month. They had walked from neighboring countries wow. as the word had spread. There was this great need to access the medical care that was being severely uh, underfilled or unfulfilled. And one of the other great needs that I believe this was during your experience in Liberia that you realized was access to clean water. That's right. Can you tell us about that and how you came to that realization? Yeah, well, all these people were sick. And then as I got off the ship and into the rural areas and and traveled around the country, I learned that 50% of the people in the country were drinking unsafe water. They were drinking from dirty, contaminated swamps and ponds and rivers, brown, viscous sources of water. I also learned that half of the disease in the country was caused by bad water. So here, you know, there were, there were a couple of things going on. We don't have enough doctors. More people are sick than we are able to help or treat. But yet half the country doesn't have the most basic need for health met. And half of the sickness in the country is, is because of this. So I very quickly had my issue that second year in Liberia and said, man, someone needs to do something about the water. Someone needs to go to the root cause. We were treating symptoms, but the root cause of so much of the sickness and disease was water. And that's really when I came back at 30 years old after this transformative two-year experience volunteering with Mercy Ships and said, I'm going to help people get clean water. So maybe there doesn't even need to be a Mercy Ships one day. And I can imagine this was a sort of stark contrast to your relationship with water during your nightclub promoting days, right? Yeah. You were probably charging yeah. 5 $10 per bottle uh, at, at nightclubs. And then here you've got you know half of the country without access to clean water. Yeah, the question about water was, is it sparkling or flat? And that's right. We would charge 10 bucks to people uh, just to buy it at our nightclubs. So after you got back to New York, you spent two years in Liberia, got back to New York. You were back in this environment where all of these old temptations were surrounding you. How did you manage to stay clean? I was so changed when I came back. I mean, I had this cold turkey moment, so I never smoked again. I never touched Coke or any of that stuff again. I never gambled again. I mean, I swore off this life of vice. So when I came back, I was really a teetotaler. I mean, I wasn't fun. 
for my friends and I was showing them pictures in nightclubs. So I actually went back into the nightclubs because those are the people that I knew. But this time I would open up a laptop and I would share my experience. Mm. And, you know, I'm showing pictures of leprosy in high end fashion nightclubs. I think people just responded. They knew me. They said, wow, I mean, we want something like this in our life. We want to have a life of purpose or a life of meaning. I guess there was never really the temptation to go back. There was a responsibility to do something about what I'd seen. Uh, What I had seen had changed me. And that responsibility to do something led you to eventually start Charity Water. So let's talk about that. How did you end up deciding to, to start Charity Water? I had no money when I came back from Africa. I'd I'd given all the money that I had to Mercy Ships and the people that I'd met along the way. And I wasn't a very good saver anyway as a nightclub promoter. But I just started. I filed uh, for a nonprofit status. I got some volunteers around me and said, you know, let's try to raise awareness. Let's try to raise money. Let's try to go find partners who can meet these needs in these countries around the world. And it was just a a real flurry of activity from events to exhibitions to uh, inviting myself to speak at different places and, and share my photos. You know, that was That was one thing that I think really helped. You know, when I came back, I had taken 50,000 photographs. So there was a real authority. You know, imagine inviting the photojournalist in to give an account for what he had seen out there in the world. That just ended with me asking people for money (laughs) for for clean water. And when you started Charity Water, you didn't have the the trappings of institutional knowledge in the nonprofit world. You spent two years in Africa, but you were very much an, an outsider to a charity organization. Now, those who are listening, that might strike most people as a disadvantage. But do you think being an outsider advantage you in some ways? I do. You know, I was talking to everyday people uh, who worked at a bank or worked at Sephora, worked at MTV at the time. And I wasn't talking to institutional philanthropists. I started just going on a listening tour, really, and saying, hey, I'm going to try and solve a a big problem like water. What would make you give to something like this? Or or maybe what would make you not give to this? And I realized that there was a, a real disenchantment. A lot of people didn't trust big charities. They didn't know where their money went. They didn't feel connected to the mission they didn't feel connected to their dollars out there making an impact. And I, I realized that there was a big opportunity. There was a, a study actually done by my alma mater, uh, NYU, on charitable trust. They found 70% of the people they asked believed charities wasted their money. Wow. 70% of the people said, when I give money to a charity, I don't think it's spent well. So I, I wondered what it would look like for Charity Water to create a model that spoke to some of those objections, that won back some of the disenchanted people who might not be giving and say, hey, we'll take a different look. And, and the, the big idea, number one, was could we find a way to use 100% of people's money to directly fund clean water projects? Could we raise all of the overhead separately in a separate bank account from a very small group of visionary donors so that I could go out there and say, hey, if you've only got $1 to give, all $1 will go to build a water project to help someone in need. Or if you have $100 or $100,000 or $1 million, 100% will go straight to the projects. So I opened up these two separate bank accounts and I I resolved at the beginning that I would raise the overhead personally and, and separately. And then the second realization we stumbled into is, well, wow, money's not fungible. We're not just mixing it together in one bank account so we can really track it. 
Mm-hmm. So I could tell you if you gave $30, here's where your $30 went. It went to India, uh, Risa India, or it went to Chikwawa in Malawi, or it went to uh, Cambodia or Bolivia. So we could build really cool uh, impact tools. We could track dollars down to their final location and show people the impact of their money. So those two things were really foundational. And then the third kind of core belief was just that for our work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable in the long run, it had to be led by these local partners in each of the countries. Uh, It had to be led by the locals and you know, Ethiopians in Ethiopia, not not a, a guy like me from New York City parachuting in with a hard hat trying to drill a well <laughs> uh, or learn hydrogeology. So our role would be to create a movement to create energy and animation around clean water for the world, raise as much capital as possible from as many people as possible, but then find, identify the local organizations who could turn that capital into clean water for people in need. I love that. Uh, and that was all of all three factors you just explained were the reasons why I, I decided to donate my forthcoming books, pre-order royalties to Charity Water as well. When I was looking at potential charitable causes to to give to, Charity Water just stood out for the reasons you mentioned. To, to know that 100% of what I'm giving is going to fun water projects and that actually could be tracked. Uh, like I know exactly where the water project is going to be and that it would be led by, by local partners. Yeah. That, that team, I, I think um, you supported a project in, in uh, Odisha, India, yeah. mm-hmm. a place I've been to a bunch of times. Let me tell you, first of all, it's hard to get there. It's like two flights in country and then a five hour drive and then nine hours drive out to the rural wow. areas. <laughs> but, but the guy, uh, th- that's actually a great example. So uh, one of the, the the first projects you funded. Now, this is led by a man named Joe Madiath, who 45 years ago started his charity. He is Indian. And when he was young, he saw his grandfather feed some of the local workers from a hole in the ground. And he walked over to his grandfather as a, as a boy and he said, grandfather, why are you feeding the people who work for us like you feed the animals? And his grandfather said, because those people are dogs, they're animals. And something in this little boy snapped and he said, I'm going to use the rest of my life to fight for equality and I'm going to fight for equality using water and sanitation to break down these barriers. And what he does is he goes into communities and he forces 100% participation in the water and the sanitation and the hygiene. And because of the culture in the area where he works, when he first started, 90% of the villages rejected his help under those conditions. And he would hear things like, oh, I'm not drinking the same water as them. 90% of the people said, no, we're good with our dirty water if it means that we all have to share. Wow. And he just started working with the 10% and the 10% and the 10%. And, you know, amazing thing to watch your neighbors around you get clean water and toilets and showers and be so entrenched in your, uh, in your views of exclusivity, right? And, and, you know, now over 45 years, he's made an extraordinary impact and he employs hundreds of locals. But if you go to Arisa, India, you're not going to see anybody that looks like me or, or, you know, maybe some of uh, the people here on our team in Tribeca, New York City. You're going to see amazingly passionate locals that Joe has found and trained, uh, many of them who have worked for him for for 30 years. And these water projects, and I should also mention, there's a really powerful video. I think this is from 2013 that Charity Water 
put together that explains how the this is Graham Vikas, right? That's the organization. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. how that works in the community. I'll include that in the show notes. It's like a seven minute video, but it's so powerful and and well worth watching. Because in addition to bringing clean water and sanitation to these communities, these water projects also end up breaking these barriers that exist between people uh, in terms of caste, which is such a powerful barrier in India, as you described. Um, so I'll include that video in the show notes. I encourage everyone to to check it out. One of the other things I wanted to ask you is, so Charity Water tells a, a great story and people respond to to stories. What do you think are the, the key elements of a of a great story? When you think about telling a story to people, and by by the way, I in addition to to that video, I highly encourage people to check out Scott's book Thirst as well. It's a uh, it's a, a masterclass in, in storytelling. You're very kind. You're no, very kind. it's an it's an excellent book. I finished it in like two days. So, what do you think are the the key elements of a of a great story? Well, first, it needs to be true. <laughs> in our in our case, right? And I and I think we're we're really careful to not embellish, not to lead people into stories that might you know maybe even be better for our work. So it needs to be true. Uh, I think in, in the way I think about it, it needs to be visual. So I think by seeing. I think in pictures, in photos, and in video. You know, Charity Water has now made over 1,000 videos since we started the organization. And I know how to shoot and edit in Final Cut. And, you know, there's just kind of a there's, – there's just this – it's in our DNA that we show and tell. Uh, because it's one thing for me to describe to you uh, a tumor, maybe of, of a patient that I saw in Africa, or even leprosy, right? And you might have an idea of what that would look like. It's another to actually see it. It's one thing for me to describe, you know, brown water that looks like chocolate milk. But when you see a child knee deep in that water, it it imprints a little differently. I think it moves you uh, in, a, in a different way. So I think stories for us are true. They're visual. And gosh, it's, it's funny because I've seen people kind of read books around the organization on storytelling. And I think in some ways it's just innate. I'm, I'm not sure I could teach it except that intuitively and instinctively we have built a culture, maybe starting with me, where we just see stories everywhere. And we see stories in our failure that could be useful. Uh, I, I think uh, maybe I would say that stories can speak to values. Uh, I'll give you just one example of a story of failure that I didn't get to tell, but I, I wish I had. This probably goes back five years. We had crowdfunded a million-dollar drilling rig in Ethiopia, and I got about 10,000 people all fired up about funding and drilling rig and putting their names on it. Uh, we were going to be able to go faster. We're going to drill more wells, help more people. Well, the rig, uh, we mount a GPS tracker on it so people could see where it was. We, we put our rig on Twitter so it could tweet its location. And then I learned four years later that our rig has crashed on a narrow road in Ethiopia. So our rig, our million-dollar rig that 10,000 people sacrificially gave of their money to pay for – went belly up. So just imagine, you know, like a, like a beetle with its, you know, legs flailing in the, uh, in the sky, right? Our, our rig was on its side, the, the wheels are up and it's not helping anybody. Our local partners were a little sheepish in, uh, you know, in telling us, right? <laughs> so their, their, their plan was just, Hey, let's just go fix the rig and we'll get it back and running and then we'll keep drilling. But it's almost like maybe if you crashed your parents' car, you would fix it first and then say, <laughs> Dad, I crashed, you know, I crashed your car. 
but I did the right thing. I took it to the body shop. I paid for it on my own and, and we're all good. Right. Right. Well, the minute I heard about it in this moment that the partners were fixing it, I tried to send photographers out there to actually get me pictures of our crashed rig. And my plan was to email it to the 10,000 people with the email headline, we crashed your rig in Ethiopia. <laughs> right. Because what I learned what happened was our partner was actually taking a risk on that road to reach a highly marginalized community. And the easy thing is to drill wells by the highway, right? It's to only take the easy roads and to say to a community like that, oh, yeah, we can't get our rig in because you don't have a good enough road. But they risked it and they thought that they could get there. And in trying to reach uh, a highly marginalized community, they crashed. They, they ran off the road. And, you know, for me, that story would have a speaking to the challenges of doing work in places like Ethiopia and the difficult operating environments that we're experiencing around the world. But more importantly, it would speak to the tenacity and the courage and the determination of our local partners who are not taking the easy way out. And I think that would have really resonated. Now, as it turns out, by the time uh, we could get anyone out there, the partners had already fixed it and the rig was drilling again. But you know, I think not everybody would look at that as a story or an opportunity. That might be something that you bury, right. not shine a light on. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think most organizations would have sort of tried to sweep it under the rug, you know, or explain it away. But you embraced it and and turned it into a story of, of tenacity and courage as opposed to a story of, of, of failure. That's really beautiful. Now, you mentioned storytelling is somewhat innate I wonder, though, I know that your club promoting days were, it was a dark period for you, but did you pick up any storytelling skills or really any other skills from your nightclub promoting experience that you're still using today? You know, I think we always just wanted to be remarkable. We wanted to stand out. We wanted to say our club is better than others. And there's either we have a better DJ or we're throwing some sort of theme party. I, I think it was about remarkability. And, you know, as we've thought about our campaigns, we're thinking maybe it's about attention. How do you get people's attention? We do that in a, in a variety of ways through the clubs, many of them visual, uh, many of them by exercising creativity. You know, we used to throw pool parties where we get 100 beach balls and we'd put lifeguards up on lifeguard stands in the middle of the club and, you know, ask everybody to dress in a, in a pool party theme, you know, in the middle of winter or something like that. So they'll always try to just make it fun. Maybe just fun is a word. You know, if you look at the word fundraising, the first three letters are actually fun. It's not shame raising. It's not guilt raising. We have a really optimistic, joyful approach when it comes to working on this issue, building a community, inviting our community to be a part of something really special around the world. And yeah, I think a couple of those lessons might have been learned from, from nightlife. You were in your early 30s when you started Charity Water. If you could go back in time and talk to that younger version of yourself, what advice would you give them? I probably would not have told myself back then how hard it was going to be. <laughs> um, raising money is really, really hard. Building an organization is really, really hard. Getting culture right, hiring, uh, doing all that in New York City, really hard. I've taken 71 flights already this year. You know, at, at the peak before I started having kids, I was I was doing 95 to 100 airplanes every single year. The travel is intense. It just is bone crushing. 
after a while. Uh, I've been to Ethiopia 31 different times and Charity Water has never bought me a business class ticket or me or anybody else. So, you know, we're flying coach around the world. And I probably would have shielded the young me from just how how hard it would be, the, the, the cost of it all. But I might have, have given me a glimpse at, at what it really means. You know, Charity Water has just broken through 10 million people served. My local stadium here in New York City is Madison Square Garden, where we watch our sporting events and go to U2 concerts and stuff. The stadium only holds about 18,000 people. So, you know, Charity Water has filled up that stadium more than 500 times with the people around the world that have clean water because of the organization. So I think I would probably start at the end or where we are now. And, you know, we're much more ambitious. We're right now trying to get the next 25 million people access to clean water and do it a lot faster. And just so the audience has an idea of the dirty water epidemic here, how many people die of dirty water every year? This is a little bit of an old stat, so it's not quite as bad. When I started, it was 4,500 kids dying every day. Um, that's probably down to about 2,000 now. But, you know, you think of just jumbo jets crashing every single day. Somebody was in my office recently saying, think about all of the time and the tens of millions of dollars that was spent looking for that Malaysian flight, right? The missing Malaysian flight. Sure. That amount of people are are dying. I think it's 10 of those flights are going down every single day around the world, just related to unsafe water and, and sanitation. So huge, huge numbers. Um, it's thousands and thousands of people every single day. We think it's about 2,000 kids is, is the last stat that I saw every day. Every day. Um, and globally, 663 million people don't have access to clean and safe drinking water. So 663 million people, about a tenth of the planet, are drinking bad water right now. And the beauty is we actually know how to help them. There's not a single person that needs to. And there are intractable problems that we are working on. We, we are not sure if we will ever find a cure for pancreatic cancer. Right? Do we, there are vaccines that we are hoping to develop that we're just not sure we're going to get there. But water's not like that. There's not a single human being alive that we do not know how to help, that we do not know how to bring from dirty water into clean water. We haven't created the awareness. We haven't created the will. We have not amassed the capital to do it and created the generosity that's required, but we know how to do it. So that's what we're really focused on is growing this movement, inviting more and more people in to make this something they care about so they can tell their kids, you know, I was a part of this movement to make sure every human being had clean water, had their most basic need for health and for life met. I, I believe we can solve the water crisis in our lifetime. If people want to get involved and want to contribute to Charity Water, what's the best place for them to go? You know, we have this amazing giving community we've really been focusing on growing, and it's called The Spring. I would think of The Spring the, the same way you might think about Netflix or Spotify or HBO or Hulu. We wanted to create a community of people who showed up every single month, but not for content, uh, who showed up every month for clean water. And we, we leveraged our 100% model where we could promise that if you were given $30 a month, that would be enough to give one human being clean water every month. If you could only give $10 a month, 
all $10 would go straight to the field to help people. We know there's some people that could give $100 a month. We have some people even giving $1,000 a month, and they're helping one community every 12 months, every year. So this has been a huge focus for us. Uh, it's called The Spring. Uh, we now have community members from over 120 countries, uh, including Turkey. So it's it's really global, uh, including members from some of the countries where we actually work in, in Africa, in mm. India, in Southeast Asia. And it's, it's really come as you are and give what you can. Anchored around this idea that $30 can bring one person from dirty water to clean. So if anybody wants to know more about that, I'm a member, my wife is a member, you could just go to thespring.com. And there's also a video where you can see just some of the images and, and some of the stuff that, that we've been talking about uh, on that homepage. It's also a great way just to share the Charity Water story with others uh, in a visual way. Obviously, uh, this podcast as well, just just helping, helping us spread the word. And let me also add that anyone who signs up for thespring.com and hears about it on this podcast, I will send a free copy of my forthcoming book think like a rocket scientist oh, amazing too. oh my so gosh I'll, I'll sign it for you i'll personalize it i'll include a personal note in there so just forward your receipts once you sign up for the spring.com forward your receipts to rocket at ozanvarol.com so that's rocket at o-z-a-n-v as in victor a-r-o-l.com and i'll send you a, a signed personalized copy of my forthcoming book it's really the least i can do and as as i mentioned to you scott as before we started recording here I'm also donating my royalties from the pre-orders from my forthcoming book to Charity Water as well. And we were already fund one, able to fund one project. And my goal is to fund another one early next year as well. And uh, for those who are listening, you were thinking about perhaps not just donating to, to the spring, but also at some point sponsoring a water project. Let me just underscore that every interaction I've had with Charity Water has been nothing short of exceptional. From the you know, the first time that we walked into, my wife and I went to New York and walked into the offices of Charity Water, to every email interaction I've had has been has been nothing short of exceptional. So I highly encourage oh, that you That makes to, me feel great. Thank and, you. And let me also we give us- We have an amazing team. We have an amazing team. Yeah, I was going to say, let me also give a special shout out to Heather Wolf, who's been uh, our primary contact at Charity Water. And so, so yeah, if anyone has any questions about our experience, please, please feel free to reach out. And thank you so much, Scott, for this amazing work you're doing, this amazing organization you've built. You're an inspiration in so many different ways. And it was, it was such a pleasure and privilege to speak with you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on and, and for your generosity. I can't wait to read your book. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.